and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last night. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl, but I'm a screen girl. We're kicking off the fourth season of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. Last year, we had in-depth conversations all across the Commonwealth, and we unpackaged the 2020 election. We met unique candidates who were running for office last November, and we did a deep dive on the redistricting process. Now, we're staring at the May primary. It's fast approaching, and in campaign headquarters, they're counting down the days and planning every evening and every weekend between now and then. So we're going to kick off this season with J.J. Abbott. Many listeners might know J.J. from Twitter and certainly from his years as Governor Wolf's press secretary. He's going to share a bit about his incredible journey over the last decade, and we're going to look into his crystal ball. J.J. knows every corner of PA, every nook and cranny of the state capitol, and I'm really looking forward to his perspective on the 2022 elections. Hey, J.J. Abbott, welcome to my kitchen table. Thanks, Ari. Thanks for having me. JJ, I think we met more than a decade ago when you were working with Admiral Sestak. It's crazy to think that was over 10 years ago, but give folks a sense of your background, you know, where, where you're from, how you got involved in the crazy world, and you're like up to your eyeballs in Pennsylvania politics. But let's, uh, let's start there before we take a look into the 2022 crystal ball. Sure. So I grew up outside of Philly in Narberth, bopped around the suburbs throughout Uh, Growing up, uh, I went to Pitt for undergrad and sort of got my uh, first uh, foray into Western Pennsylvania. I graduated in 2009 at the height of the recession. It was a difficult time to be a, I was a dual marketing and writing major. Uh, And so I, you know, I've become interested in campaigns in particular, particularly the marketing communication side of them throughout the Obama campaign. There was a lot of you know, interesting new uh, frontiers in the in the marketing world of politics uh, in the 2008 election. So I kind of had this interest. I wasn't super political or politically involved, but you know, I'd been sort of I'd really gotten a little taste of political campaigns and how they intersected with the things that I was interested in. So politics is a re- relatively recession-proof business, and so I had the great fortune of uh, my sister uh, was actually you know, working in. Con- uh, Congressman Sestak's office at the time uh, as a scheduler. And I was looking for what to do next. I was interested in politics. I ended up getting connected with someone there. I think I was like the fifth person to really hop on board with the, the Sestak for Senate campaign. It didn't really exist. And the first thing that I did when I was there, because there were so few people, is I, I actually I set up uh, the first social media accounts for the campaign and, you know, a, a host of things like that. And, and then I went on the road with the congressman for almost nine months, but including a, a 67 county tour in 21 days in July of 2009. Uh, and that was really my kickoff. And so I, I ended up parlaying that experience into working for then Auditor General Wagner on his gubernatorial primary through uh, that took me back to Pittsburgh, where I ended up working for his niece and an incredible elected official, Chelsea Wagner, who's 
uh, was most recently the, the county controller, and then now is a, a countywide judge there. I worked for Chelsea for almost four years in different capacities on the campaign side, and then winning her race for controller. And then from there, I went and I took a big jump from local working on local politics and campaigns. I uh, went to go work in the attorney general's office and was there through a tumultuous, tumultuous year. Uh, I was hired as sort of an entry, not an entry level, but a, a deputy press secretary. And within four months, I was the, the highest uh, ranking spokesperson in the office while, you know, learned a lot about uh, crisis communications and what not to do in elected office communications. And then I was really fortunate after that experience to land on my feet in Governor Wolf's office, where I served for five years in his communications department, including my last three as his press secretary. So, you know, being the press secretary for the governor is kind of like a, I always say being the governor is sort of like being a CEO and a firefighter at the same time. But the press secretary is kind of on the front lines of all of that. And so uh, it really gave me an amazing, you know, perspective, I think, on, you know, the state, both how it operates, but also, you know, the the people and, and what it needs. And so, in you know ahead of the 2020 election i was starting to think about what i wanted to do next and how i could be involved and i was really fortunate to get offered this opportunity to start a new organization um, which is a progressive communications nonprofit that's called commonwealth communications we are really fortunate we work with you know dozens of uh, other organizations that are doing the work in pennsylvania to advance progressive change in the state both at the local and state level to defend democracy and work in the public interest and so uh, i've been you know really fortunate to have be in this role since march of 2020 and we've you know been able to make a lot of great build a lot of great relationships with folks in state to, to try to raise uh, our ability as people who care deeply about the direction of the state. And, and that, you know, I think thinking about, you know, we try to think about that and, and not just in the terms of one one chamber or or one election or or, or even one policy, but rather uh, looking at the public interest more broadly and how we can make sure that, pe- that you know, the people of Pennsylvania and the things that they're facing are, are, are more centered in our conversations rather than, you know, a lot of our, our conversations in the state about policy and about problems that people are having get reduced down to like partisan politics. And you lose sight of, you know, kind of what's really important, which is whether or not our leaders are actually solving the problems that they're elected to solve. And I think, you know, we've really worked hard to build a strong network of folks that we can work with to try to elevate how we're we're centering people in our conversations and also advancing the fight for the kinds of changes that we want to see in Pennsylvania across the board. So, you know, I've been doing this for about two, a little over, a little, almost two years now, and um, really grateful to, for all the folks that we've been able to work with and, you know, to be part of the, the independent work that's that's being done to advance the common good and the public interest in Pennsylvania. JJ, it's good stuff. Lots to uh, unpackage. I want to... Um... Just touch on uh, quickly that that firefighter uh, analogy. I, I feel like any organization, whether it's a campaign or a for-profit startup or established, needs to have a proactive message and not reacting to grenades going off and uh, fires being uh, lit. But would love your perspective, maybe just reflecting on um, some of the fires you had to uh, had to put out. And then I'd love to go back to your time at UPID. I recall that the uh, Obama campaign did did some big events out there, and curious if you. Uh, you know, if you got involved, even as a, a college student, or you were still kind of apolitical. 
the governor's office is, you know, is that is a place where you need to be able to do both proactive and reactive in a, in a sort of overwhelming and all encompassing way. You know, uh, you know, people, you know, see the governor's office as the place where, you know, the, the, the lynch point, right, the, the place where things are or are not happening. And so when there is a problem, you know, the first place that they're going to look is the governor's office. But at the same time, you know, the governor is responsible to, for running, you know, the largest enterprise in the Commonwealth, and that is state government. And it has, just an incredible um, uh, reach and breadth of of different things that organization does, and so it's a lot about having you know really three three tracks. It's about managing the day to day and making sure that you're instilling confidence in people about the way that you're running the government, having a proactive agenda that shows people that you understand their concerns and that there are things that need to get that they need to be improved and really having an agenda and having a proactive communication strategy that instills confidence in people that you're working to address the problems that may not have a solution uh, within the government. And then the third is that defense, um, which is, you know, the firefighter, which is like, you're going to have, you're going to play defense on the things you cannot control, like a a crisis or some sort of environmental problem uh, or weather problem. Um, but it's also the incoming, right? And you're getting that from all sorts of directions. You're getting really good faith stakeholders that are pushing and putting pressure on you to do the right thing. And you have to figure out how you balance all the other factors to make sure they feel like they're being heard and that you're able to kind of plan and do the things that you need to do to address that problem while while also they're putting pressure on you. But then also the bad faith stuff, all of the, the sort of arrows and, and all sorts of analogies that we could make about the things that are getting thrown your way from folks that you know, are trying to undermine the things that you're doing. And so it's a complicated place to serve, particularly for the governor, but also for his staff, because there is so many fronts on so many things that you're managing all the time. Uh, And so, yeah, I mean, we had everything from big events that we managed from, you know, the DNC and the the papal visit and, you know, that that were planned to the big events that that we could never plan, things like floods and an ice storm that shuts down the turnpike for two days and strands hundreds of cars, you know, to the the really amazing sort of proactive things you can do to make people's lives better. That's, uh, you know, things that we did administratively, uh, that the governor did administratively, like expand Medicaid expansion and offer online voter registration to the the things he was able to do in the legislature, like increasing education funding or founding Penny, the state's open marketplace, which require legislation. So, you know, it's 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 a lot, but it's also this really rewarding place to, particularly if you're you're from Pennsylvania and you care deeply about making it better, uh, like I do and like Tom Wolf does. It's it's also a really, you know, exciting place to go to work and and try to try to tackle some of these challenges that Pennsylvania has been facing for a long time. Good stuff. You're, so you're, you're, you're a junior at, at UPIT. You're hundreds of miles from home. Very different. It's almost like two different states, Montgomery County and uh, Allegheny County. And the Obama campaign's catching fire. Did you, did you get involved? I, I distinctly remember a big event at Soldiers and Sailors, but you know, it sounds like you probably could have never thought yeah, I was more of a fan then, right? So I wasn't I wasn't super yeah. involved in politics, but I was really involved in kind of student activities, I guess, as a college student. So that sort of intersected a lot with politics, whether it was like lectures that we did or 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 you know, when there were events happening, we often provided, you know, like support to those events, whether it was 
you know, help like volunteering or things like that. So, you know, a lot of interactions and actually a, a, an interesting anecdote is that when I was a senior at Pitt in 2009, I was the head of our activities board. And so, you know, we put on concerts and lectures and all sorts of events like that. And we had a lecture in February of 2009, where our first lecture of the year was actually David Pluff, who was President Obama's campaign manager. And our lecture director was like not around that day for whatever reason. So I kind of got deputized to, you know, or not deputized, had to step in to sort of take up that the work. And so we spent, I actually spent all day with him and we, we, we went around to meet with volunteers and students that had participated in the Obama campaign. He met with a couple classes uh, and then did this lecture. But I, you know, I sort of spent the day with him, picked him up at the airport, got to ask him a lot of questions about what I was interested in. And, you know, he actually encouraged me to, you know, get involved and, and that, that politics seemed like something that could line up with what I cared about and what I was interested in. So I, I did, you know, I pursued it from there. And that really was the spark for me to try to get involved was, was actually after the campaign had already been won, but, you know, sort of engaging and, and seeing sort of how that how much the campaign had meant to people and, you know, learning, you know, being with this person who had such an integral role, uh, it was really inspiring. And so that that's sort of my what really pushed me in uh, was actually after the campaign, um, getting to, you know, sort of dig in a little bit more about what it, what what it was like in it and and trying to and and really seeing that as a way something that I wanted to do and a good way to kind of apply what I I cared to uh, apply my skills and and the things that I cared about. Well, I, I'd encourage listeners to to check out David Plus podcast that uh, I think ceased, but during the 2020 cycle was was incredibly insightful and informative. It was absolutely it was great. Uh, so we've racked up over the last year, JJ, about seven thousand listeners. I think anecdotally, um, I've heard a lot of them are students. So this is sage advice. Uh, for students. Um, I always get scared with the students who say, you know, five years, I'm going to do this, 10 years, I'm going to do that. It's like, no, just go with the flow. And, you know, some of the best things happen uh, by happenstance. I want to kind of look forward in the second half of uh, our discussion today. There is, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't even count the number of Republican candidates that are running for governor. There's still, as we're recording this, all sorts of questions about the legislature and the maps. But as you look at the crystal ball, I think we're somewhere around 275 days out from the general election. And campaigns are counting by the day. We don't know who's going to get on the uh, the ballot with uh, petitions, but what are the big themes? I mean, you've seen every corner of Pennsylvania. You probably know every municipality uh, across the Commonwealth. So what are the big themes that, that that you're looking for in the lead up to the primary and then you think are going to dominate the summer and fall? To start, I think the big themes are going to be that Pennsylvania will be probably the watch, most watched state in the country. And so some of the themes, you know, I think that's but partially for two reasons or, or really three reasons. The first being, you know, looking ahead to 2024, a lot of national observers are going to look at Pennsylvania and the governor in particular is going to have a lot of impact on uh, our elections. Right. And with the state of our democracy, which I probably don't need to get into the weeds uh, for too many listeners on this show, but there's a lot that the governor is going to impact. And that's that's not just the legislation, whether, you know, the governor signs it or not, but also, you know, who you know, the, the next governor is going to appoint the secretary of state. Most other national, most other states that are kind of in the national spotlight this year, uh, a lot of them have elected secretaries of state. When you look at a place like Michigan or Georgia, and those have really become flashpoints in those races. But in Pennsylvania, it's really been sort of an understated part of, uh, of this. There's not as much attention on it. But, you know, that that's a really the, the stakes are just really high. So when you look at 
the legislation that a governor might sign or veto, which is which is around voting rights, but also applies to labor rights and something like uh, a right to work bill or healthcare and reproductive rights, like something like an abortion ban, and so many different things that a governor really can give thumbs up or thumbs down on. But then it's also the the administrative stakes, right, which is everything from how elections are run to how our uh, social service programs like Medicaid and uh, nutrition assistance are run to everything from, you know, fair, you know, Governor Wolf has put in place policies around hiring that uh, make sure that hiring is more diverse. He's put in place policies around contracting to make sure that people who get state contracts are more diverse and that are paying fair wages and providing benefits. And so I think the stakes of the governor's race is going to be a recurring theme across both the country and then also uh, across the Commonwealth. Uh, And then I think, you know, when you look at the stakes, you know, the Absolutely. The Senate race is going to be a huge focus. Um, the Pennsylvania is one of a few states where the Senate race could flip or a Senate seat could flip control reasonably. So we have, you know, we're, we're, we have candidates that are running right now to play, replace Senator Toomey, who folks I'm sure know is a Republican um, who's not running for reelection. Um, there's only so many seats uh, out there. I think Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and just a few others where it's reasonable that you could have an, you a current Republican uh, be replaced with a Democrat. And so when you look at control of the Senate, which Republic or Democrats have now, but uh, have still, you know, with a 50 seat, a uh, razor thin 50 seat majority have not been able to move a lot of the policies that they want. So I think the stakes of the Senate race here, largely the arguably the most competitive uh, in the country. Uh, and so It's going to be really a big focus federally because of that Senate seat. So I think from a a big standpoint, the stakes of these races at a national level are going to be a big focus. Um, But when I think you look at like sort of a more more state level perspective, the big themes that I think we're going to we're going to see are first and foremost, I think, is COVID. And so I think the COVID is hasn't gone anywhere. But, you know, all indications are that you know, we're going to see a pretty steep drop, you know, in in, in cases, we're already seeing it now, what well, we should see, you know, likely in other places that we've seen a drop in both deaths and hospitalizations after the Omicron spike. So I think what we're, we're going to try to figure out is what happens next, you know, there is, in Pennsylvania, for instance, there's no statewide restrictions left in place, but Republicans keep talking about COVID, like oh, everything is shut down and people are still forced to do a lot of things that they're no longer forced to do. Uh, and so I think that's going to wane. And th- so it's really like who can seize what's next coming out of the pandemic. And I think Democrats have shown, you saw Governor Wolf has rolled out a pandemic recovery plan. Uh, and so I have legislative Democrats at the state level. Obviously, the, the Democrats a- in Washington continue to focus on what they could be doing into in sort of get us recovered from the pandemic. And so, you know, I think that's going to be a big focus. And I think Republicans have struggled to really have a clear agenda for what's next after COVID. Uh, And I think that's an area where we could see a real theme emerge. I think that dovetails into the other major issue that we've seen dominate the conversation in the last year, which is the economy. And I think, you know, that's a really interesting flashpoint because the economy is now really doing quite well. It, a lot of that is now being linked to things like the American Rescue Plan uh, and some of the other policies that did pass. And so I think that will mount pressure on for there to be continued action around the economy. There's a lot of problems that workers are having with uh, affording the cost of living. There's a lot of 
problems that businesses are having with whether they're a small business and they're they're hard, they're trying to keep up with the labor market uh, and where wages are going, or a larger business that is just having a, a difficult time competing uh, in the national economy. I think there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of demand around the economy, and I think we're going to see some really clear contrast between what Democrats want to do in the economy that's focused on workers and what Republicans want to do, which is likely going to be more tax cuts or, frankly, probably not talking too much about what they were going to do because most of their plans are around the economy are pretty unpopular. And then I think the other issue that is likely to be a big focus continued is is our uh, is elections and our democracy. Pennsylvania has been really ground zero, as I said, for the attacks that we've seen in our democracy. And that's not just bills um, that they're pushing to restrict voting, but it's also uh, trying to pursue audits and 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 other ways that they are pursuing these in investigations that are uh, really aimed at at lowering confidence in the electoral system to taking over how votes are counted or who counts the votes or what votes are counted. And so, uh, you know, I think we're we're seeing this on all fronts from the legislative perspective. And the last thing I just raised there as a theme is I think we're going to see more attention on le- the legislature in Pennsylvania's obsession with constitutional amendments. And so they've really been pushing to no longer engage in traditional legislating uh, with the governor, unable to compromise or, or willing to compromise with their colleagues. They've been pushing through these huge sweeping partisan changes to our constitution, which is are, are I think, uh, starting to get people's attention because they're on all fronts, labor rights, uh, abortion rights, voting rights, and all sorts of, of crazy things around the pandemic. Uh, and so, you know, I think there there's going to be more and more attention on this strategy, and it really raises the stakes uh, of the legislative elections because the governor cannot veto constitutional amendments. So it would require flipping a chamber of the legislature in order to derail what it's clear Republicans are set on doing. And so, you know, I think that that'll be a recurring theme over the next year as well. This is definitely a lot to unpackage. You know, there's there's an entire podcast to be had, especially about the future of our democracy. And uh, I can only imagine what our founding fathers, some of whom are buried in the Commonwealth, are thinking. But we'll, we'll leave the... It is, it is a stark thing just to stop and think about, like, the, the place where our democracy was literally started is really ground zero for where it's, you know, how Republic, the Republican Party nationally is trying to undo it. Uh, and they have, you know, I think that the other thing that is is really important for people to remember is that they really haven't succeeded in Pennsylvania yet, but they're really teeing up so much of this, you know, it, and, and it really is raising the stakes for it in the 2022 elections. What happened back in the 18th century, it was it was really to use the expression that shot her around the world, you know, it, I'll leave it to political scientists and historians, but it really kind of gave birth to parliamentary democracy and the whole shining city on the hill. I sometimes question, uh, you know, how do we get that shine uh, fully back? But we're deviating. I want to uh, pivot to some of the raw politics. So you're from one of the wealthiest counties in, in the country, Montgomery County, but you've seen, you know, every nook and cranny of all 66 other counties. You worked for Governor Wolf, who came from a red county. Give folks a sense, and we have campaign managers, we have statewide candidates who listen to this, and we certainly have aspiring uh, politicos, as I said, students, and certainly quite a few activists that listen. But 
What do you, what do you think often gets overlooked in these statewide campaigns? In other words, you you know you could spend a lot of time turning out the vote in Philadelphia, and that's super important as Democrats. But what do you think the candidates should be spending the summer and the fall thinking about? Not that we're giving Republican candidates advice, but you know we'll see who comes out of the Democratic primary. But these statewide candidates and their teams, what what should they be? Uh, thinking about uh, politically as they look at such a diverse commonwealth with so many of these policy themes percolating? I think when it comes to Pennsylvania, it's really, you know, in order to win, you need a both and strategy. You need to be able to turn out your base pretty aggressively, but you also do need to win persuadable voters. And so I think as campaigns are starting to look at the general election, I would say that's something that you can ignore. You can ignore. And I think the peril of campaigns, it, in Pennsylvania is to pick one and not and at the expense of others. And so if you purely pursue a strategy of I'm going to try to persuade voters or I'm going to just if I'm a Democrat and I'm going to try to win Republicans and you ignore the folks that have been that that agree with you on most of the issues, it's not a winning strategy. And so I like to to encourage people not to try to find some silver bullet, but really try to do all that you need to do with everyone. And so when it comes to the base of the, you know, particularly I'm not a Republican consultant. I never worked on a Republican campaign and I don't work for Democratic campaigns now. But I think just thinking about the, the area where I know a little bit better, you know, I don't think the Democrats can expect to solely persuade enough voters away from Republicans in order to win in 2022. That, I think, is not something that is possible. I think what needs to happen is there needs to be a robust conversation that starts right now with the base of the Democratic Party about what the stakes are for this election and what Democrats would do if they could. Both And the stakes are obviously a positive and a negative thing, right? The stakes are are both the things that the governor who, you know, the governor needs to be able to stop if it's if they're a Democrat. That is particularly important when we talk about things like voting rights, abortion rights and workers rights. But it's also about what can be done. And, you know, Governor Wolf, uh, for all the pushback that he's gotten in the legislature, has gotten some good things done. And that is through relentless advocacy. You know, one of the things that I think is not acknowledged a lot about Governor Wolf is that he as a strategy, went everywhere and talked to people about the things that they cared most about. Schools, jobs, and a government that actually is responsive to their problems. And, you know, that is what I would say to the candidates is that when you look at the people who will actually vote for Democrats statewide, it's about 60% of the, the population. Those people agree on a lot of things. You could find 90% agreement on things around the economy, around education, around healthcare, around workers' rights, around voting rights that those people agree with. And we should be focusing on building solidarity with those folks from right now. And so there used to be this strategy that you could focus on just persuading people in the middle. And then at the end of the campaign, you can go and you can mobilize your base. That's gone. In the world of the 24-hour news cycle and relentless online disinformation, you have to be on offense all the time. And so you have to be, you have to still do base persuasion uh, in ways that you maybe didn't do 10 years ago, because you need the base, you need your voters to stick with you. 
And so turning out the Biden coalition is going to be difficult. We've seen steep drop offs, you know, in terms of the general sentiment among younger voters, uh, uh, among uh, lower income voters, voters of color, communities of color that have, you know, I think seen a lot of the things that they really pushed for, whether it was immigration or voting rights, you know, not materialize into real action at the federal level. It's incumbent upon, uh, you know, Democrats to and progressives to go and talk to those voters. And there's already been a lot of work, I think, that has been started around this. But go and talk to those voters about what has been done, what could be done and who's standing in the way of it, making clear the choice and the contrast on issues that are really important to people. And, and you know, the, the fact of the matter is this is what Republicans do all the time. And they they really do focus on their base. You look at what the legislature does in Harrisburg. They're not they're they're not talking about jobs. They're not talking about schools. They're not talking about the economy. They're talking about the 2020 election. They're talking about COVID restrictions, and they're talking about lower taxes, even though, you know, that doesn't really solve the problems in the economy that most people are facing. And so, but it is the red meat that their base wants. And so they talk about it relentlessly. So Democrats can't fall, in my opinion, can't fall into the trap of talking about just those issues. There has to be another track where we're talking to the people who will actually vote to uh, vote for us about the issues that they care about and that are important to them. And you have to do that in a way that's both appeals to your base and to people who are persuadable to vote for you. You need to be talking to them, too. But there is a lot of agreement on the issues. And I think that's where Democrats really should be focused is how do you contrast with the things that Republicans are talking to that are only really important to their base with the things that Democrats are doing or want to do that are important to a larger swath of people, particularly the people who might actually vote for them. JJ, you've been super generous with your time. We're going to wind down momentarily. The phrase you mentioned went everywhere, and you you certainly put on a lot of road miles, first with Admiral Sestak and and certainly with, with, with the governor. What I'll use the term media market. That that that's that, that's probably the way you uh, the, the lens that, uh, through which you look. What what media market do you think folks should be really focused on as Democratic politicos, uh, who I think many of our listeners are. You know, I'm thinking I, where I'm coming from is Josh Shapiro lately has been telling the story of visiting Lawrence County and meeting an older um, female voter there. And you know, you don't often hear about Democrats statewide candidates going to Lawrence County on the Ohio border. It's but. What, what kind of gets often overlooked? Yeah, I suppose we could have a long, long discussion about your home county of Montgomery and squeezing every vote out of there. But beyond the fairly blue Southeast Pennsylvania, Philadelphia media market, where, where do you think often gets overlooked, both by national reporters and then candidates budgeting their travel and, and staffing? So I would say I am a big believer in density, right? I feel like, you know, in politics, you, you, you should prioritize to some degree around density. And so I, as a, as a comms person, I, I think it would be malpractice not to say people should focus on the Southeastern Philadelphia media market, right? I mean, it is the largest, the most vote rich. It, it is obviously. I think for me, though, I would say that. I- I buy that. I grew up fishing in the Lehigh Valley, and you go fishing where the fish are stocked. But you know, where, where's where, where's the fishing hole that people don't often uh, look at? So what I was going to say is actually, I think our smaller, denser, third class city metro areas, and there are a lot of great ones all over Pennsylvania: Lancaster, Harrisburg, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Erie, and then even some of the smaller places like. 
Coatesville, Norristown, like uh, some of the towns in Beaver County, uh, Aliquippa, Beaver Falls, you know, and, and, and looking at those areas, there are a lot of ancestral Democrats that are there. But I think more important than anything, those areas are suffering from a lack of investment. And it makes a very, very persuasive argument to those folks to say that the Republican Party has controlled the budget in Pennsylvania for essentially 30 years. They've, they, when you look at legislative control over the last three decades, I think there's maybe four years out of 60 total where Democrats could have controlled one chamber, you know, like 30 years, two chambers, four years, four of 60. So, you know, you really have this persuasive argument, I think, that the investment that people are about to see over the next six months to two years is largely going to be because they we elected a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress who passed the American Rescue Plan and the uh, infrastructure bill. These places have suffered from a lack of investment, and that, that's largely because we have a conservative legislature that's become more extreme and more austerity focused uh, in the last decade. And so I would definitely say that looking for the densest places and where we can reach people online with a message about investment is really important, um, particularly in these communities where they've seen jobs leave, investment leave, going back and making the case that what the, the deal that they've gotten for the last 30 years or so hasn't been that great. And uh, what they're seeing now is what happens when we have leaders that are actually focused on solving their problems. The American Rescue Plan delivered millions of dollars, billion, billions and billions of dollars to local governments that they have right now to use to invest. The state is sitting on billions of dollars still from the ARP fund that could be invested in revitalizing communities and helping out people and, biz and small businesses. And the billions and billions of dollars are about to come to Pennsylvania for things like roads and bridges and broadband and water infrastructure, things that have been plagued with lack of investment for decades in the state. And that's simply because we elected a new president and set, sent a new Congress to Washington. And so, you know, I think that's a really strong argument to make. But so in terms of geographic targeting, I think we should be looking at density. But I think we should be looking at it differently and, and not just looking at it as a, a media market strategy, per se. So that we should be paying the same attention to places like Norrisville, Norristown, Norristown, Coatesville and other Doylestown. These other these small cities in the southeast with little metropolitan areas around them that rely on development and transit and these things that require investment. Uh, and then also looking at those similar areas all across Pennsylvania. So Johnstown and Harrisburg and Carlisle. And there's just there's so many of them where there is this opportunity to make the case that there's one party that's looking to invest in these places, that's delivering historic investments in these places uh, and making that very clear case to people that these places need help, whether it's people or small businesses or uh, our infrastructure, and that we should be electing people that are prioritizing that. And when you look at what what has happened over the last 30 years, when you send Republicans to Harrisburg, it's just simply not what they do unless they're really forced to do it. And they usually then do it in the way that is not most advantageous to your everyday person. JJ, I know that that's excellent. 
I want to just end uh, on kind of a positive memory. Looking back at the 2018 campaign, which you were up to your eyeballs in, probably with many, many sleepless nights, the governor got reelected. My old boss, Senator Casey, got reelected. But all the way down the ticket, uh, it was hand in glove really coordinated, you know, and there's often the the joke about Democrats having a coordinated campaign and it not being too coordinated. But 2018 was certainly with state house, state Senate and those congressional races, a very unique year. So once again, we're in a midterm. When you look back, and obviously it's two different points in time, very different points in time, how can the party and how can campaigns, federal and non-federal, start to think immediately out of the gates after uh, uh, the primary about a coordinated operation? I think staying focused on the stakes for everyday people and communities in Pennsylvania. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of politics that's, that goes on, right? And, and particularly in primaries and then, and especially in that transition but between a primary and a general election. And I think one of the things that was really unique about 2018 was that, you know, Senator Casey and Governor Wolf had a great rapport, but there was also a lot of ego that was set aside and they focused on the outcomes that they were working towards and why those were important to people. And so, you know, Governor Wolf made his reelection about the things that he wanted to continue doing to improve people's lives, whether that was raising the minimum wage, whether that was fixing our broken school funding system or trying to put in place things like paid leave or um, non-discrimination protections for people at their jobs and in housing. And that, and Senator Casey has always sort of focused on, you know, those kitchen table issues, you know, hearkening all the way back to his days of state service, things like health care and child care and long-term care for seniors. And, you know, I think that was the focus of the campaign. They The, the campaigns ran really aggressively, both on the positive and then also on defining their opponents early and often, and never really took their foots off the gas. Even when even when the what polls in the summer were saying, you know, that this was this was over and that, you know, that both had these huge leads, never relented. Uh, and I think that's that's a focus. Stay clear eyed on the things you want to do, make it personal to people and work as hard as you can for as long as you can to do those things. You know, really, it, it's not it's not a huge secret there, um, but I do think it is 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 not allowing the other side to define you and not allowing them to define the terms of the debate are something that we always focused on from the really the beginning of my time in the Wolf administration is like we were not there to win a political fight or to, you know, come out the winner of the day's news cycle. We were there to, to remind people constantly that the governor was trying to do the things that they wanted to see to improve their lives and improve their communities. And I would uh, encourage that to remain the focus, you know, uh, of campaigns and candidates and really uh, put aside as much as you can, because there's so much on the line this coming year. I mean, we didn't even really get into all the stakes are we could have podcast after podcast about each individual thing. But, you know, there's so much at stake for the Commonwealth and for the country. Uh, and that I hope, you know, that the candidates that are running to protect Pennsylvania from the kinds of things that Republicans are trying to do and to advance the kinds of things that people want to see happen, uh, that they can stay focused on those things and really center people in their campaigns. 
Well, JJ, thank you so much for your time and for a decade plus in, in service to the Commonwealth. Uh, I agree. We were just kind of scratching the surface, so we might just have to schedule you back at my kitchen table. But um, your crystal ball, this was definitely a lot for uh, listeners to digest as we kick off our fourth season and look at the next 275-ish days uh, before Election Day. So thank you. Absolutely. So Thanks so much, Ari, for having me. Thank you for tuning in to a special episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. Please join us for future episodes by subscribing, and while you're at it, give us a rating and a review. We love listener feedback, so drop us a note via our website, papoliticspodcast.org. And a very special thanks to Jake Schwartz for all his production assistance. I'm Ari Middleman, and this is Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics.